0: Well, hey, Northside family, my name is Aaron, one of the pastors here, and I consider it a great privilege and honor to to have the opportunity to share God's word with you today. And and I know that he has a word for you as he has for me in preparation of this message. And we've been on a journey this year as a church, this Quest 52 year-long pursuit of Jesus, and we've made it to the fourth quarter. We're kind of at the tail end of this thing, and we're Answering this question, was Jesus political? Now, I don't know about you, but when I even hear that word politics, I tend to add a few S's to it. You know, politics, there's something snake-like about the whole topic of politics. Um, I think that uh, I'm probably not alone in this. Last week, the New York Times posted an article with this headline How do Americans feel about politics? Well, disgust isn't a strong enough word. And in that article, they referenced uh, recent uh, results that were published from a Pew Research Center survey of Americans and their thoughts and feelings about politics, and this is what they found. 65% of Americans polled said they felt exhausted when they thought about politics. 55% said they felt angry when they thought about politics. So just thinking about politics leaves the majority of America tired and angry. And uh, I think this is probably a good statistical representative, uh, a representation of that survey. And that's not good news for a preacher because the topic today is not one that too many of us love thinking about. And yet we're gonna find some value in it today. Um, So this is what we decided here at Northside, uh, that because people really love this topic, we wouldn't do just one week, but we do two. And so I get the tail end of this. Last week, our good friend Ephraim Smith was with us, did a fantastic job. If you were here, you know that to be true. If you weren't, I'd invite you to jump on mynorthside.com, watch that message, you'll be blessed by it. But if there are two topics uh, that that create tension anytime you have a group of people together, it's politics and religion. And so it's probably not the best time to share this, but I'm going to. I am actually a two-time town councilman. Uh, Several years ago, I was elected to the city council in Wabash, Indiana. More recently, I was appointed to fill a vacancy on the town council in Markle, Indiana. And uh, I have no political aspirations moving forward. I can assure you I'm a former politician, current pastor, prayerfully a future pastor as well. We'll see how today goes. but I am interested in this topic and very much in this question of was Jesus political? And yet, right here on the front end of my message, um, I can answer that question pretty easily in the affirmative. Yes, Jesus was political. And Mark Moore, who authored this Quest 52 book that we're using as a guide, he wrote these words Jesus was political by any reasonable definition, but he altered the purpose and practice of political leadership so as to require a whole new metric of success. What really throws us is not Jesus's lack of position, but his use of power. Politicians are known for using power to promote and protect themselves. Jesus, in contrast, used power only for the powerless, and his brand of being political subverted politics itself. So the question, was Jesus political? Yes, but that's the easy answer. The harder a question and the harder answer to come by is, so what does that mean for us? What are the implications of that for you and I? Last weekend, we uh, had this biblical theme of politics. Today, our biblical theme is authority, And I'm gonna make a statement I think you'll agree with. I think you've probably found it to be true in your life. We rarely get to choose who has authority over us, do we? I mean, maybe we would like to be able to choose those who are in control of our lives to some degree, but we often, most often do not. And when I think about those in positions of authority in my life, I think of the three Ps I think of parents, police, and politicians. Um, Preschoolers are a close fourth because if you've ever uh, been around a three-year-old who needs a nap, you talk about authority, all right? They run the show at that point. But I think about parents, police, and politicians. Let's start with parents. They're actually in the room, which is kind of awkward. Um, But it takes me back to second grade when I observed their authority in my life. Uh, I had an injury that required a, a short stay in the hospital. And when I came home from the hospital, I was recovering and a friend of mine from school came to visit me and he brought me a gift. And we had a good time together, hanging out and then he left and I opened the gift and I found what was all the rage at the time in that gift, Garbage Pail Kids toys. Anybody remember these? Man, as a second-grade boy, I thought these things were amazing. However, in an egregious overreach of their authority, (laughs) my parents determined that uh, they were not appropriate, and they took those toys from me, uh, never to be seen again. And so my response to that power play of my parents uh, and their exercise of authority over me was to respectfully acknowledge their role as uh, authoritarians in my life and just to patiently bide my time for a couple of decades until I would have kids where I could exercise authority over them as my parents had over me and one example of that among many I assure you is that in my house I've made the rule that they cannot sing any Christmas songs before Thanksgiving Yeah, we get some amens and some claps for that. And my kids, you can ask them, no joke. They know that the penalty for singing a Christmas song before Thanksgiving is that they lose one of their Christmas gifts. All right. You know, blame my parents. They started it. And so I actually am willing to go on record to say this. If I hear anyone singing a Christmas song after service today, I will not pray for you. Okay, just (laughs) throwing that out there. When I think about authority, I think about parents. I also think about police. Um, I didn't hire the officer who arrested me for stealing a Casey and JoJo CD from Walmart when I was in the eighth grade. But nonetheless, uh, he had the authority to enforce the law in that moment. And some of you are wondering why you're here listening to me at this point, right? Parents, police. And politicians, you know, I I really love the fact that I've got the right to vote. What I'm less excited about is that everybody else does too. (laughs) And, you know, if I could cast a ballot and my guy or my gal would get the office and that would be great. But you and I, we are living under the authority of people we have not uh, necessarily voted for. And all those are just illustrations to to point out the truth that we rarely get to choose who has authority over us. But what we do get to choose is how we respond to those in authority over us. And I'm going to make a statement that I believe with every fiber in my being and that will be foundational for the rest of what we talk about today and we see in Scripture, and it is this. Simple yet profound truth that when it comes to Jesus, he already has authority over us. And by us, I mean all people. And we read about that in scripture. We have those who testify that truth about Jesus. And we have Jesus himself who claims as much. And in Colossians chapter 1, here's what we read from the apostle Paul. Everything was created through him and for him. And here's what Jesus said about himself in Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. When it comes to Jesus, he already has authority over all of us. And so the question is, how are we going to respond to that? Will we acknowledge Jesus' authority? And if so, what are the implications for our life. And what I wanna do as we get into our primary text today is I wanna highlight four things that Jesus has authority over. And I wanna pause for a moment to pray for you specifically that as we read God's word and as we submit ourselves to its truth and authority in our lives, my prayer is that God would stir something in your heart, stir something in your mind that's just for you today. That as you think about your life and your faith, that you would invite and open yourself to being moved by God so that He can let you know what He wants you to know. So pray with me, if you would. God, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for truth in a moment where it's hard to come by. Gotta pray for every man, woman, and child here today who's listening to your word, that, that they would be open to hearing what you have for them today. And that as they are encouraged to consider your authority in their life, that they would also readily recognize where, where they haven't acknowledged your authority in their life pray that you do the same for me, even as I preach your word. I thank you in advance for what you're going to do. Have your way, Jesus. I pray this all in your name. Amen. Our primary text for today is going to be Matthew chapter 21. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to get those out, whether they're in print form or on your phone, it's fine. Matthew chapter 21. And what we're going to see is is three kind of movements, three instances in which we see the authority of Jesus on display. And for a little bit of context, what we're about to read comes just after Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Verse 10 actually says that the entire city was in an uproar. So there was a a lot going on and a lot of excitement and, and wondering about who Jesus was and what he was up to, and we pick up in verse 12 of Matthew 21 with these words, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you will. Have turned it into a den of thieves. Let me ask you a somewhat rhetorical question. Where do you have the authority to rearrange the furniture? It's in your own house, right? Uh, not your friend's house. I've heard of refrigerator rights, you know, get in there and get you a Coke or whatever, but I've never heard of rearrange the furniture rights. Uh, I'd love to do a little bit of a social experiment where the next time you go to a friend's house, you just start moving couches and chairs and tables around. Let me know how that goes, would you? But the truth is that Jesus has the right to rearrange the furniture in the temple because it is his house. And that's the first thing that Jesus has authority over that I want to highlight today. And it's that Jesus has authority over his house. You see, he drove out both the sellers and the buyers. He knocked over tables and chairs to send this message. You've made my house something other than the place of prayer that I intended it to be. It had become an exploitative, bazaar, far from the heart of God. And Jesus wasn't okay with it. Now, I'm going to ask you the question today. Have you made his house something other than he intends it to be. Now that may beg the question, what is his house? We don't really go to the temple anymore. Well, in Ephesians chapter two, we, we learn through these words, together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him becoming a holy temple for the Lord. So when we gather together as a church here at Northside, we are the church. And as a result, he has every right to rearrange the furniture in our church collectively and in our lives individually. He has every right to start flipping tables and chairs when we turn his house into something he never intended it to be. And so I want to take a moment to remind or inform you as to what his house is not. His house is not a place where my preferences are paramount. His house is not a place where we pick and choose what we want from Jesus and leave the rest behind. His house is not a place where I'm the center of the story. His house is not a place where the ends justify the means and pragmatism trumps faithfulness. But here's what his house is it's where we worship in spirit and in truth, it's where we come into his presence without posturing or pretense. His house is where we bring our failures and flaws and somehow exchange them for his grace and mercy. His house is where we die to ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus wherever he leads. What does Jesus have authority over? He has authority over his house. And so friends... What furniture does he need to rearrange in your life? And will you let him? Verse 14, we're going to find the second thing that Jesus has authority over. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. At first blush, you might be tempted just to pass by that. If you've been around church for any length of time, you you probably read this and think, well, yeah, that's on brand for Jesus. That's kind of what he did. You know, miracles, healing people, you know, taking care of folks, that's sort of what Jesus does, right? And while that is true, yes, what's important to capture here is that the blind and the lame were by nature of their deficiencies prohibited from full participation in the activity of the temple. And they were, they were outcasts, they were unwelcome in many ways. And here is Jesus who has authority over everything, has power beyond anyone, and he chooses to use that authority and power to meet hurting people right where they were, to include them into the house and the family of God. And this is a good opportunity for me to encourage you with this truth that that our pain and brokenness doesn't disqualify us and it doesn't disgust Jesus. That whatever pain you walked in with today, we have a savior who supersedes it. And that Jesus then is the same Jesus today and so that's why we can with full confidence know that in spite of ourselves, despite our flaws and failures, our pain and our brokenness, we're welcomed in his house. And my guess is there's probably more than a few of you here today who have some pain because you're human and you have some brokenness because you've, you've seen a few things and And I wanna encourage you, the Lord loves you. He knows you deeply. And he wants you to experience life with him. Not so that he can hold you under his thumb. Not so that he can hold whatever that pain and brokenness is against you at some point when it suits him. He's well aware And yet he's full of grace and love for you like any good father is. Welcome to his house. You know, when I think about pain and brokenness, I I often share this. Forgive me if you've heard it before. But I tend to talk about the things that really mean a lot to me. And, And I have a great deal of pain in my heart, in my life. Um, that comes as a result of being the father of a special needs daughter, our daughter Leah. She's 11, and she is largely nonverbal. She's the light of our lives, but it breaks my heart that she has never been able to tell me how her day at school was, and she may never. And she knows I love her, and I know she loves me, and yet I yearn, I long for the day when she will be able to tell me with her own words how she's feeling. And yet, in the, right in the center of that pain is an overwhelming joy and a real-world hope that one day, he's going to wipe away every tear. One day, he's going to make a way. One day, he's going to redeem my pain for his glory and my good. And my guess is there's something like that in your life too. There's something that hurts, it cuts deeply. And I hope, like me, you will find it to be true that even in the midst of that pain, there is hope, there is grace, there is joy, there is healing because we have a Savior who supersedes even our greatest pain. Praise him for it. And yet here's the response of a few folks that day. Verse 15 The leading priests and the teachers of religious law saw these wonderful miracles and heard even the children in the temple shouting, praise God for the son of David. But the leaders were indignant. Uh, So let me get this straight. Religious leaders who are in positions of authority are indignant. They're fired up and frustrated when uh, they observe wonderful miracles and kids praising God. Think they might have missed it somehow there? I think so. And so this is what they did in verse 16. They asked Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? Yes, Jesus replied. Haven't you ever read the scriptures? Zing. For they say, you have taught children and infants to give you praise. And then he returned to Bethany where he stayed overnight. Jesus quotes Psalm 8 to these religious leaders with the rhetorical question, haven't you read your Bible lately? This is kind of what's supposed to happen. And he says, yes, I know what these kids are saying. And I'm not apologizing for my authority because they are actually the ones who are getting it right. Verse 18, the next morning, as Jesus was returning to Jerusalem, he was hungry and he noticed a fig tree beside the road. And he went over to see if there were any figs, but there were only leaves. And then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the the fig tree withered up. There's a hangry joke in there somewhere, but I'm going to move on. Uh, Verse 20. The disciples were amazed when they saw this and asked, how did the fig tree wither so quickly? I think this is kind of funny because this is not the first miracle the disciples have seen Jesus do. You'd think by now they'd have gotten used to the fact that Jesus is kind of a big deal and he can do some pretty wild things and they just add this to the list. But they're amazed nonetheless and so it becomes a teachable moment for Jesus in verse 21. Then Jesus told them, I tell you the truth, if you have faith and don't doubt, you can do things like this and much more. You can even say to this mountain, may you be lifted up and thrown into the sea and it will happen. You can pray for anything and if you have faith, you'll receive it. Brings me to the the third thing that Jesus has authority over and it's this. Jesus has authority over his creation. Whether it's the fruitless fig tree or the fixed foundation of a mighty mountain, Jesus has authority over everything he has created. He is supernatural, in the most literal sense of the word. There is nothing on earth that Jesus does not have dominion over. And this is good news, friends, because I don't know if you've seen the news lately, but the world is kind of on fire. And for many of us, our hearts are burdened with the chaos and the depravity And the brokenness and pain that's all around us, both far and near. And yet, when we recognize that Jesus has authority over his whole creation, then we can rest even when we're concerned because we know he's still in control. And and that's not an easy concept to grasp because we have our questions We have our wonderings, we have our wishes for how we would like things to go when they don't go the way we think they should. And yet we see time and time in scripture, this reminder, this encouragement, this teaching that Jesus has authority over it all, even when it seems like everything is out of control. What he expects from his creation, not the least of which is you and I, is fruitfulness. And so as we trust him with the things that are beyond our control, he has entrusted us with good work to do and to bear fruit by his spirit and for his glory. It's good work that he's called us to. In verse 23, we continue with, These words, when Jesus returned to the temple and began teaching, the leading priests and elders came up to him. And they demanded, by what authority are you doing all these things? Who gave you the right? So they've moved from from their righteous indignation that they largely kept to themselves to outright accusation and demanding Jesus to explain himself Essentially saying, Jesus, who are you to perform miracles? Who are you to receive worship? Who are you to flip tables? Who are you to curse a fig tree? Who are you to claim to be king and Messiah? And we might wonder why they thought they could be so bold, but aren't we often just as bold with Jesus? I know I've found myself thinking or perhaps even saying, Jesus, who are you to tell me to wait why would you do that? Or God forbid, God, would, why would you tell me no? doesn't make sense. Or, or why would you use that person? Or, or who, who are you to work that way? And here's Jesus' response in verse 24. I'll tell you by what authority I do these things if you answer one question, Jesus replied. Did John's authority to baptize come from heaven or was it merely human? They talked it over among themselves. If we say it was from heaven, he'll ask us why we didn't believe John. But if we say it was merely human, we'll be mobbed because the people believe John was a prophet. And so they finally replied, uh, we don't know. And Jesus responded, then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. And it leads me to the fourth area of authority that Jesus has that I want to encourage you with, and it's this. Jesus has authority over our expectations of him. (laughs) They demanded. By what authority, Jesus? And yet Jesus knew there was a deeper issue here, and he wasn't going to play by their rules. And I have a lot of questions for Jesus. There's a lot that doesn't make sense to me that I hope one day will and yet here's what I know to be true. Jesus doesn't owe us an explanation for what and how and when he does what he does. And I wonder how will you respond when his way doesn't make sense to you. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. You don't get to choose but you do get to decide how you will respond. And so will you acknowledge his authority over his house? Will you acknowledge his authority over your pain and brokenness, whatever it might be specifically? Will you acknowledge his authority over all creation? Will you acknowledge his authority over even your expectations of him? In a moment, our elders are gonna come and share a word with us. They've been placed in a position of authority over us and I'm grateful for their heart for Jesus and their love of this church. But I wanna finish by returning to that question, was Jesus political? And I wanna answer it with this, Jesus is king. The only question for us is, will we bow our knee? Will we bow our knee to his kingship in in our homes? Will we bow our knee to his kingship in our brokenness and pain and sin? Will we bow our knee to his kingship when things don't go our way or the way that we think they should go? My prayer is that you will. And here's what I know to be true as I have done as much, that when you bow your knee to King Jesus, what you find is a king who loves you deeply, who meets you right where you're at, and who helps you take the next step to the life that he's called you to, the best life possible. He made a way by dying on a cross for you and I and raising from the grave He reigns in authority as king over all creation, and yet he wants to know you on a very personal level. I hope you will bow your knee to a king who loves you.